good to see you. Good to be with church family today. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are present. Lord, this morning is filled with clutter and chaos for a lot of us. Uh, those of us, parents of these little kids, some added clutter and chaos. But Lord, all of us, regardless of what's going on in our lives this morning, there is various things that are cluttering our minds and our hearts and our souls. There's, uh, there's chaos in our lives, Lord. There's chaos in the world. And um, Lord, I don't ask that you would remove us from that today. I ask that you would make us aware of your presence with us in the clutter and the chaos. Lord, you are here. You are present. You are Emmanuel, God with us. And so this morning, as we look at your word, as we fellowship with one another, sing songs of praise, Lord, as the kids have a Christmas party downstairs, Lord, I pray that we would hear from you, that we would engage with you, that we would be reminded that you are here and in your presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And we long for those this morning. So make us aware of it. For your glory, our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like a lot of you, I grew up in a Catholic family. My, my family, actually, I wasn't born into a Catholic family, but my dad grew up in a Catholic family, and he kind of came through a Catholic school, and when he was in his, I don't know, late teens, early 20s, like many people do, he kind of broke away from Catholic tradition because he thought it was boring. Those of you who are here, I know some of you here are still part of the Catholic tradition. That's fine. There's a lot of boring things in Catholic churches and in evangelical Protestant churches, and there's a lot of exciting things that God is doing. My dad's story is he, he broke away, and he didn't really believe the, the, the stories that he heard growing up. And then God met him in his 20s, and, and he became a Christian. He became a Protestant, but this didn't remove kind of the Catholic roots of my family. And so as a kid, I would often go to Catholic Mass. And I remember being kind of intrigued and confused by some of the icons and some of the saints that they would pray to and they would talk about. Because being in a Protestant environment, we didn't talk about the saints. We didn't pray to Mary. We didn't consider Mary or Christopher or some of these other saints from church history. And, and I remember kind of being confused, intrigued, you know, early on as a kid. I was intrigued, and then I think the more that I grew and the more that I became aware of my own faith and what it means to be kind of a Protestant evangelical, I think my curiosity turned a little bit more to judgment, confession, right? And then when I was in my mid-20s, I was working as a youth pastor, and I took my students to a, on a trip to Romania, a mission trip to Romania, and I remember going into an Eastern Orthodox church. All these symbols, all these icons, all these different figures from the past, all these different saints, all these different disciples. And I remember, you know, in my soul there was some curiosity, but it also had turned to some judgment. I think sometimes we can, we can do that. Sometimes we can be judgmental rather than curious. And the last couple of years I've been kind of reconsidering what, why does the Catholic Church give such prominent places to these different saints, to these disciples of old? Why does the Eastern Orthodox Church give such prominence to these disciples of old? And it's been kind of a course correction for me as a Protestant to think, you know what, sometimes we have whitewashed that history too much. Maybe, maybe we don't give enough credit to the saints of old. Maybe we don't give enough consideration to the disciples who have gone before us. Scripture says to imitate those who have gone before you to look at the example of their way of life, and to, to imitate their faith. And so this entire fall, we've been looking at disciples from the New Testament, talking about 
what, what they did in following Jesus, what did it look like for them to follow Jesus, and how can we learn from that? And so this morning, we're going to continue that. We're going to finish it out this morning, and then we're going to go into a new sermon series in the new year. But today, we're going to finish looking at the disciples, and we're going to consider Simeon and Anna this morning in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. And we're going to follow two threads as we go through this story. One, the disciples, their examples worth imitating. One of the things that I really appreciate about, appreciate about the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church is that it, actually part of this, it, and if you go into history, there wasn't any worship of these disciples and these saints. They, they, they actually revered them. They thought, these are examples. These are disciples who have gone before us, and their lives are worthy of imitating. And so we're going to follow that thread through this text today, and then we're also going to follow the thread of Jesus, the Savior, worth worshiping. And we're going to hold these two things together and see how these two things can encourage our faith this season. So I'm going to ask that you stand as I read Luke chapter 2, verse 22 through 38. Grab a Bible in the pew in front of you. If you don't have one, it's on page 857. I'd love to have you follow along as I read this text. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses... They brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now, are, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword shall pierce your own soul, soul also, so that thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Lord, may you use this word to teach us what it looks like to imitate the disciples who have gone before us, and to worship you, the Savior who died for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, this text contains four specific disciples, Mary and Joseph, who we've looked at the last couple weeks, and then Simeon and Anna. Simeon and Anna are kind of the featured disciples here in this text, but it, it also it, it incorporates Mary and Joseph. And so we've looked at Mary and Joseph the last couple weeks quite a bit, so we're not going to do a deep dive on them, but we're going to do some consideration of them as we go through this text. What did they show us that is worth imitating? 
I, I think it's interesting that Mary and Joseph, I mean, even just the diversity of the disciples, right? This church is filled with a lot of diversity of life, age, and background, and political opinion, and thinking, and all of that, right? There is diversity among the disciples, the early followers of Jesus, a ton of diversity. We've seen that as we've gone through this series throughout the fall, that, that you have a tax collector and a zealot polarized against one another. Different views of the world, different, di- completely different worldviews. And here in this text alone, we see Mary and Joseph. They are young. They're probably in their mid to late teens, early 20s, betrothed to be married. They're from the small town of Nazareth. They're likely from a poor, common family. In fact, we're told that when they go to to present Jesus at the temple, that they bring a pair, verse 24 says, they bring a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. In the Old Testament law, this is, this is given as a um, kind of a, a, an offering that a poor family could bring if they couldn't afford the more expensive offering of a lamb or a goat. So we know that Mary and Joseph are poor, they're young, they're from kind of a, a backwoods town, the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee. Simeon, he's older in age, He's devout, he's righteous, he's been at the temple, he's, he's from Jerusalem, a prominent city, a powerful city, an influential city. Anna, as well, older in age, living in or near the city of Jerusalem. And so we see the diversity of these young, devout, like Mary and Joseph trying to figure out life, and then we see the devotion of these older disciples, and we need each other, right? Amen? If you look around this church, you see some people with some gray hair, you see some people without their hair. You see some people who will have gray hair and will lose their hair, although they have no idea about it right now, right? And we need one another. And as we read through the scriptures and as we consider these disciples, their examples worth imitating. And so we want to learn from their example this morning, and there's some things that we can learn. The first one is that disciples are marked by devotion. Disciples are marked by by devotion. Let's start with considering Mary and Joseph here in this text. Mary and Joseph, they had gotten this news from the angel that that Mary was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, that she was about to give birth to a son, and they would call his name Jesus, and remember all that Joseph had to risk to continue to stay with Mary, and all that was risked for Mary in their social standing, in in their reputation, in their small town. And yet they continue to do what's right. That's one of the things that I want us to notice about the disciples as we walk through this story. They're just marked by devotion. Mary and Joseph, they they bring Jesus to the temple. They're fulfilling the Old Testament law. Even though Jesus was a big question mark for their social standing, for their religious standing, there was a ton for them to wade through, a ton for them to maybe deconstruct in their own minds. And yet, in the midst of that, they continued to be devoted. They continued to followed the tradition and the laws of the Old Testament. They didn't, they didn't sit in their own questions and sit in their own fear and sit in their own concerns and sit in their own, you know, wrestling with, God, why would you do this? Or why would you do it this way? Or why would you use me in this way? They continued to express devotion. Simeon tells us right in verse 24, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name is Simeon. And this man was a righteous and devout man. That word righteous, it means that he was upright, he was morally good. This doesn't mean that he was, that he was saved by his good deeds, right? It doesn't mean that he was perfect. It means that he was a man who just did what was right. 
devotion. It, it means to express a change by doing what's right. Now, I identify more, I've said this before, this fall, I identify more with the disciples who are always running their mouth, always getting in trouble. Maybe they're not, like their reputation isn't righteous and devout. That may surprise some of you. I'm a pastor. Aren't they supposed to be righteous and devout? Well, pastors are people, and we have our own struggles, and all of you have your own struggles, and you're people, and some of you may identify with Simeon as a righteous and devout person. Some of you may not. A lot of that has to do with personality and makeup and wiring, one of the things that I think we need to do, those of us who perpetually struggle to follow Jesus, is to look at the example of Mary and Joseph. To consider the example and the title here of Simeon, that he was a righteous and devout man. He just did what was right. I think there's some encouragement there and some reminder for us to just keep striving to do what's right. Same thing was said about Joseph, if you remember a couple weeks ago. It says, Joseph, he was, a, he was a righteous man who didn't want to put Mary to shame. As we continue to look at the disciples of old, and then as we look at examples in the church right now, there's this characteristic of a disciple that they're marked by a growing devotion. They're hungry and desirous to do what is right same thing with Anna. If you flip over and consider Anna the prophetess, it says that she was, she was older in age. She had been widowed for most of her life. She had been married for a short period of time, but then she had been widowed. And in her singleness, she was devoted to worship. Look at verse 37. She did not depart from the temple. She worshiped and fasted and prayed day and night. Look at this devotion that we can learn from her. There's people in our own church who live lives like this that we can learn from. Some of the widows in our own church are devoted to worship and prayer and fasting, and they're praying for you over and over again. And so this is why church is a community. It's a family where we learn from one another, and we also look to the saints of old. It's one of the things that, that I'm learning to appreciate about some different church traditions like Catholics and Eastern Orthodox is that they do a better job of looking to the disciples of old and saying, you know what, there's some stuff that we can learn from these people. There's some stuff that we can imitate from these people. And so, church, this is something that we have to keep in mind as we look at these disciples, that disciples are marked by devotion. They're not saved by devotion. Just to, just to be very clear, we believe in the gospel, the good news. We, as we've gone through this sermon series, we've looked at looked at the fact that God puts his favor, his undeserved grace, his unmerited grace upon people. That's why we're saved. We're saved through Jesus because of what he's done, not what we do. But there is this response then of a disciple. If we believe that, if we believe that God is faithful, and in his faithfulness he has sent us a Messiah, one who has lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, overcome sin and death in the grave, that results now in us growing in our devotion in simply doing what's right. And so keep encouraging one another to do what's right, to do what's right, to do what's right. Some of us need to, need to get out of kind of the cheap grace mindset where we're like, well, God's grace covers sin, therefore I'm going to dabble with sin or I'm going to keep doing what I want. Or, Right? Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. Do I keep sinning because grace abounds? By no means. A mark of a disciple is somebody who wants to grow in their devotion to Jesus 
Christ. The second mark of a disciple that we see here in this text is that disciples wait on God's promises. This is incredibly profound for us in our current cultural moment. And it's profoundly true throughout the scriptures. There's nobody who followed Jesus, whether it was Old Testament followers of Yahweh. Think about Abraham. God comes, initiates relationship with Abraham like we've seen throughout this series. God initiates relationship with us. God initiates relationship with Abraham and he says, go, leave your land, leave your family, leave your comfort, and I will make you a great nation. And Abraham goes and for 25 years, his wife Sarah struggles with infertility. 25 years of waiting on God's promise. Most of us can't wait 25 minutes to get the next thing, right? We live in this instant gratification culture where you want information. Remember back in the day when you would be having a conversation with family or friends and like a question would come up and you didn't know the answer and you just sat there puzzled? Like, I'll go to the library later on and look it up. Or, you know, I don't know. I got a friend who knows stuff about that. I'll ask them later on. Or maybe you even made a phone call, like phone a friend. Now you just pull it out. You phone Siri. Hey, Siri. And we have the information instantly. We live in this culture where we're so formed by instant gratification and instant access to all that we want. And yet throughout the scriptures, we see that disciples are people who are willing to wait on God's promises. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, waiting, waiting, waiting for God to give them a king. And then a king fails, and another king, and another king fails, and another king, and another king fails. And then they go off into exile. 70 years in Babylon, waiting. God, you promised and waiting and waiting and waiting. And one generation comes and one generation goes. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting on God's promises. And then as Jesus' birth enters in, there have been 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence from Yahweh to his people. And yet we see this man, Simeon, waiting. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation doesn't mean like a consolation prize, right? Like a secondary thing. It's, it means comfort, the comforter of Israel. Those who have been living in a land of darkness, a great light will come. Those who have been oppressed, those who have been beaten, those who have been abused, those have, who have been looked down upon and cast aside, there's a comforter coming. Remember, as we looked at Joseph we're reminded that Jesus comes to deliver us from our sin, not from oppressive governments. And he comes to bring us comfort in the midst of trial. Simeon, waiting on God's promises. Anna, flip over again, look at Anna. This old lady in her old age, widowed, waiting. It says in verse 38 that after, after she saw Jesus... She came up that very hour and began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's this theme throughout the scriptures that God's people wait on God. They don't rush to conclusions. They don't rush to make things happen. They don't rush to try and fix the world's problems with the world's solutions. They wait, they wait, they wait, they wait on God. How tempted have you been these last couple of years to try and insert yourself in a conversation? To insert yourself in a situation 
to try and solve something with your own intellect or wisdom or taking somebody else's intellect or wisdom or opinion or perspective and applying it to a certain situation. And yet, consistently throughout the scriptures, disciples are called to wait on God's promises. Wait on God's promises. Wait on God's promises. So church family, let's look at these disciples and be reminded that you and I, in the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of oppression and suffering, in the midst of wanting to see things change and things grow and things move along, there's this consistent theme and call for those who walk with Jesus to be willing to wait. To, to, to think about the long-term, eternal gratification of the soul and the transformation that happens in the waiting process. Think about the times in your life when you've been most changed and transformed. I bet without a doubt, almost every one of us can say it was in a season of waiting, of question, of suffering, of wrestling through this, of, of, of really crying out to God because waiting forces us to be dependent upon God. We see that Simeon here is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for the comforter with patience. We see that Anna is waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She's willing to wait. They're not taking matters into their own hands. People have referred to, to them as like the quiet sages of the church. They're not using the political powers. They're not using religious powers they're not using social media. Thank God there wasn't social media back then. They're not using it to try and change the world. What are they doing? They're waiting on God. They're, they're waiting on God. And as they wait on God, once they receive God's promise, the Messiah, they proclaim God's purposes. This is another thing that we see in the disciples and that we see in one another that disciples, they're marked by devotion to God they wait on God's promises, and as they receive God's promises, they declare God's purposes. God's promise here specifically for them was the Messiah. I love Simeon has this like special revelation from the Holy Spirit that he will not die until he sees the Christ, the Messiah. Amazing. He, he takes that promise from God, and he believes it, he trusts it, he, and he waits for it. And then when Jesus comes into the temple where Simeon is, the Holy Spirit gives Simeon eyes to see Jesus and recognize Jesus. This is true for every one of us. If, if we believe that Jesus, in fact, is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, as Simeon calls him in verse 34, he says, behold, this child is appointed, the appointed one, the anointed one, the Christ. If we believe that, it's because the Holy Spirit has revealed him to us. And as Simeon waits on God's promises and then receives God's promise, namely the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he now proclaims God's purposes. Look at what he proclaims in verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. I can go home now. I can pass away. I'm, I'm not holding on to anything in this world. Nothing in this world is so important to me that I have to stay here. I've seen the Messiah. I can go home. I can go to heaven. I can live my eternal life in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He's proclaiming God's purposes in fulfilling his promises 
through his person, Jesus Christ. Anna, same thing. She's in the temple. Verse 37 tells us that, that she's devoted, right? She's worshiping, fasting, and praying day and night. Those of you who are single or widowed, for whatever reason, whatever, whatever is causing your singleness, whether you want it or not, God can use that. that. That's a specific season for you to show a specific devotion to God. To spend time praying and fasting and, and, and showing extreme, extraordinary devotion to God. Singleness is not a curse, it is a gift. And so, how might God use you like Anna to proclaim his purposes to those who are waiting for redemption? See verse 38. Anna's devoted. She's at the temple. She's praying, worshiping, fasting. Jesus comes. She receives the promise. Disciples wait on God's promise. She had been waiting. She now sees this promise fulfilled. And upon seeing the fulfillment of that promise, she proclaims the good news. She speaks about Jesus to any who would listen, to all who are longing for redemption, to all who, who are aware of the, the God-shaped worship hole in their heart, she will proclaim God's purposes, his good news to them. Church family, there's disciples in these scriptures that are worth imitating. As you read the Bible, we want to read the Bible looking for Jesus, the one who's worthy of our worship. We're going to turn to that in just a minute and follow that thread through this text. But don't downplay the examples that God has given us. Many of them worthy of our imitation. Some of them we learn from, right? Like they paid the dumb tax. We shouldn't do some of the things that we read in the scriptures and because they're there as an example of what not to do. But there's also examples in the scripture of people that give us the example of what it looks like to follow Jesus and how we can be righteous and devoted. Those examples are sitting around you. Get in a community group. Get in a small group. Have coffee. Have a meal with somebody. And ask questions and observe the qualities in one another because God has put us in this family so that we could encourage one another as we imitate one another. Amen? But that's not the point. The point is that we have a Savior worthy of worshiping. And I think the pendulum can swing too far, right? That's why sometimes Protestant churches don't talk about the saints. They don't talk about the disciples because we're overly concerned with worshiping people rather than the Savior, right? And so that's a good correction. We need to make sure that we're observing others and imitating them, not worshiping them. One of the problems in our current American evangelicalism with celebrity pastors is pastors have been put on a pedestal and then people are in their imitation or their receiving of pastors or certain figures, whether it's politicians, pastors, leaders, teachers, podcasters, that, that worthy of looking to them for an example or to learn from quickly flips into worshiping them. And then when something goes wrong, when something's revealed, people are crushed. And so there's a correction here, a reminder for us that there are disciples in the scriptures and in our churches worthy of imitating, but we never worship them, right? We have a savior who is worthy of our worship. And that's the other thing that this text gets at. Let's see what is worthy of worshiping about Jesus. 
This first point here is that Jesus accepted a divine demotion for our eternal promotion. I know, a little cheesy. Sorry about the plan words there. But, but think about this. We live in a world of promotion, right? Who doesn't want a promotion at their job? Who doesn't want to be recognized for their good contribution? Who doesn't want to be compensated for their good contribution? And if promotion at work isn't a temptation, there's plenty of self-promotion in our world, is there not? What do you think social media is all about? Self-promotion. Look at my thoughts, look at my resources, look at my ideas, like my stuff, follow me. Self-promotion, and it's grossly used by spiritual leaders. It's grossly used by political leaders. We live in this culture that's so steeped in self-promotion. It's just that's everything in our culture. I got to get my voice out there. I got to get my opinion out there. I got to get my perspective out there. And Jesus fights against this cultural pull. And this, and this, this goes through all cultures, right? There's a unique challenge with it in our current culture. But this is an age-old problem, self-promotion. And Jesus comes, God in flesh, God and man, the hypostatic union, 100% God, 100% man. Jesus comes in flesh as a human, accepting a divine demotion. He was in heaven on high, being worshipped by all the angels. He was with God when God, had create, when God created the world from the speech of his mouth. Jesus was there with God from the foundations of the earth. And now he enters the world as a crying baby filling a diaper, yes, think about it. Born in a manger, there wasn't enough room. Born to these parents from a small town, these poor parents who couldn't even make the, the, the sacrifice of a middle class or rich person. Remember, a pair of turtle doves and two pigeons, verse 24. Mary and Joseph are poor. Mary's likely illiterate. And the creator of the world comes into this. He accepts this divine demotion. How many people would do that? The kings of the world want to be elevated. The kings of the world want thrones. The people of the world want their kings to be upon the thrones, to be elevated. Jesus' disciples wanted him to be elevated. They wanted him to sit upon a throne in Jerusalem and to set all things right and to rule, rule from the top down. And Jesus came accepting this divine, divine demotion saying, no, 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 the kingdoms of the world rise and fall. The Roman Empire... You, you, you want the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, to overpower the Roman Empire and to become the new world power? Well, all world powers have a time frame. They rise and they fall, but I'm coming to set up a different type of kingdom, one of humility, one of meekness. Jesus receives this demotion so that you and I could have this eternal promotion, this, this elevation in status to being sons and daughters of God. Amen? It's an incredible reality of this passage. And, and Simeon goes on to identify it. Look at verse 34. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that it is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon's speaking to Mary here, saying, Mary, there's going to be a sword pierced through your own soul. You're going to watch your son. 
be lifted up on a Roman cross. The angel came and told you that the son would would be named Jesus, that he would deliver their people from their sins, that he is the, the rightful king of the Jews and the king of the world. So, I mean, has it right when he says that my eyes have seen salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, verse 31, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people, Israel. This Jesus is for all of people. He is the rightful king of the Israelites, but also the Gentiles. He's the king of the world. And, and here, Simeon is saying, Mary... He's not going to lead in the way that, that, that you are tempted to think he's going to lead, that the disciples are tempted to think that he's going to lead. He's, he's going to lead by, by humility, by going low, not by being puffed up, not by executing force upon the masses, but by allowing the force of the masses to put him upon the Roman cross. And it's in this in this upside-down kingdom that 2,000 years from now, there will be people on a different continent, different language, different skin color, still worshiping your son, Jesus. That's you and I. Amen? This is why we worship Jesus, because he's unlike any other king. He's not seeking self-promotion. He received divine demotion so that there could be this growing underground kingdom of all peoples as Simeon says, all peoples, why is the word S on the end of peoples? Because that's a biblical idea. The peoples of the world, not the people, not a nation, not a culture, not a specific group of people, all the peoples of the world, the Gentiles and the Israelites, all would come into the kingdom of God and experience God's grace through the person of Jesus Christ. This is why we worship Jesus. And then lastly, we're told in this passage, there's just so many reasons why we worship Jesus. Jesus is the consolation. Remember, he's the comforter. Simeon tells us, or Luke tells us that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the comforter. Simeon tells us that Jesus, in verse 30, is salvation, the deliverer of our sins. Simeon tells us that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. He is the one who lights up the path. He's the one that shows us where to go. He's the one that gives us meaning and purpose and makes things make sense. Why are we here? What do we live for? What happens after life? Jesus is the light to those questions that often lead people to dark places. Jesus is our glory. He's, he's the one worthy of worship and praise. He's the one that has real meaning and substance and eternal value, right? The word glory, talked about this last week, it comes from the Greek word doxa, which means value, substance, or worth. All the things that we're tempted to chase in life have temporary value and substance and worth. You chase money. Maybe you make a lot of money, and then you die. You chase relationships. Maybe you have great relationships until something happens. All of the things that we're tempted to chase for worth and value and meaning are temporal, except for Christ. And so Simeon here is saying, you worship this man, you worship Jesus, because he gives you worth and value and substance that can't be taken away. And then Anna proclaims this truth that he is the redemption of Jerusalem. Redemption means to be set free by somebody else's paying the price. That's, that's what redemption means. When, when Anna says that God now has fulfilled his promises in Jesus, the sent Messiah, she's proclaiming that to the people 
all the people who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. They're waiting to be put right. They're, ma- they're waiting to be made right with a God that they know is holy. So holy that they had all these practices and rituals, right? That's how the passage started. Mary and Joseph observing all these Old Testament practices and rituals, bringing Jesus to the temple to go through the purification laws, who, by the way, Jesus is the one who was there when these laws were made for mankind, and and he humbles himself underneath those laws. Incredible, right? In redemption, it, it means that we are put back together, that we are right with a holy God, Because Jesus stepped into that place. All of the Old Testament law, all of these rituals and rites were were to show us that we we can't be clean, we can't be right with God, that our righteousness are filthy rags. And so Jesus stepped into that place. He lived a perfect life that you and I are incapable of living. Died a sacrificial death that we deserve but he overcame sin and death in the grave so that you and I might have new life, amen? That's why we worship Jesus. And so church family, I wanna invite you into worshiping Jesus again this morning by taking communion, keeping in mind that he is the redemption of Jerusalem. Remember, redemption means to be set free by somebody else paying the penalty for your sin, paying the price. There's a communion packet in the pew in front of you. And you don't have to be a part of our church. You don't have to be a part of our denomination. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you want to follow him, communion is there for you to take. The band's going to come up and just play for a minute. And when you feel led and ready, I invite you to take communion where you're at, on your own, remembering that Jesus is the redemption. He's the one who stepped into that place. The bread on the top layer represents his body broken for you. The Juice underneath that represents his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And so take that when you feel led and ready, and then we'll, and then we'll close out by singing a gospel song. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that you humbled yourself underneath the very laws and rituals that you were there when they were founded, that were there to help us um, realize our need for you. Lord, thank you for these disciples who are in the text for us to imitate. Ultimately, Jesus, we thank you for the life that you lived, the death that you died, and the victorious resurrection. May we worship you, Jesus, because you're worthy of it. Use these elements to nourish our souls as we remember you. In Jesus' name, amen.